technically it's good afternoon everyone. I was just looking this morning actually at my um, iPhone calendar, other good phones are available and I realise this is the 17th time I've spoken here in the last 10 years and a lot of things have changed but the thing that I notice has changed most is you don't have your Sunday lunch till about half two so that's really encouraging. Um, Kath and I always feel very welcome when we come to Castleway Fellowship. It's good to catch up with old friends and, and meet some new ones, so thank you for your welcome today. You've done your best, Patrick, Jeff, Michelle, one or two others, to underline or maybe undermine what I wanted to say this morning. So it'll come as no surprise that I want to read from Hebrews chapter 1. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 1. And as already been said, this is a wonderful wonderful passage of scripture so let's hear the word of the Lord together beginning at verse 1 in the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed, but you remain the same and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And this is the word of the Lord. The question was posed to me at five minutes to midnight on a hot summer evening last June. I was helping on a bookstall at a Christian conference in London. That's the Evangelical Bookshop in College Square East, just to get in a shameless plug. When one of the students on the team said to me, Michael, how many of your Christian friends at university are still Christians? Now, that was much too long a discussion to have at midnight, but the question has remained with me over the last six months or so. I may not look it, but I'm almost 40 years graduated from Queen's University. And 
shortly after the above question was asked to me, a WhatsApp group was put together of some folks in the year who wanted to have a reunion. And it was interesting, just people we haven't heard from for nearly 40 years popping up all over the world to say they wanted to come back to Belfast next June to meet up. And I started to wonder about that question. How many of these folks who were Christians, who were in my Bible study group, who were active in CU, are still going on? Who would still call themselves Christians? Now, a few I bumped into over the summer, and it was good to see that they were at Keswick at Port Stewart and clearly still going on listening to God's word. That was encouraging. One or two others I've heard of who have renounced their faith. Some have left medicine and went on to be pastors in various denominations, which was great. One I've met up with recently, and I'm really not sure where he stands now. That's not up to me to decide, is it? But I wonder about you. As you reflect on the Christian friends that you had, maybe the people who first came to Castle Life Fellowship 30-odd years ago, I wonder how many of them are still going on. How many of them would still call themselves Christians? Perhaps you know someone who was once a keen Christian who was even involved in, in ministry in their church, but somehow their faith has lapsed. Perhaps that person is you. Perhaps you're really here this morning out of habit, but perhaps you really are in what old believers would have called a backslidden state. Mark Jones, in a recent book called The, the Pilgrim's Regress, explores some of the reasons why people fall away from their faith, including the insidiousness of sin, the coldness of love, the resurgence of pride, the abandonment of godly fear, the neglect of prayer, the disregard of scripture, and the abandonment of church. And it's a very useful and sobering book. For the Hebrew Christians, it seemed to be that their specific temptation was to go back to the old faith that they had had that they would desert their newfound faith in Jesus as the Messiah and return to their old religion with its priests and sacrificial system. And there were lots of reasons why they might have wanted to do that. And the author sets out to convince them of the folly of such a course. Jesus, he says, is better. And we've looked at this this morning already. Jesus isn't on any list. Jesus is better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron, etc., now, they had a specific situation into which the writer was speaking. But there are general principles, I think, in the book of Hebrews that we can find useful this morning, especially to those of us who might be beginning to drift away or slide backwards. I don't want to major on the reasons why we might backslide or fall away, because that would quickly become a series but rather on some strategies at the beginning of a new year that might help us to avoid such a condition, some strategies that might help us to persevere in the faith. So before I do that, I want you to look at just two verbs that the writer uses at the beginning of chapter 2. And the first one is in verse 1, drift away, translated in different ways in different versions, but drift away, that is the idea of a boat slipping away from its moorings and heading downstream, or a ring just slipping unnoticed off a finger. I think that translation is emphasized in the authorized version, for example. Both of these things happen imperceptibly. They're not deliberate. Now, there are people who dramatically renounce their faith, so-called deconversion experiences. They're all over the internet. But far more often, it happens gradually. 
and tends to be unintentional. Mightn't be noticed by at first, mightn't be noticed by your friends, your family, the people you sit beside in church, even by yourself. Think of the example of physical fitness. You keep in good physical shape, but after a while you just start to get a little bit lazy. You reduce how much you run. You don't go to the gym quite as often. You sit around watching TV and eating crisps. And then one day your friends ask you to climb Sleeve Donard. And you could have done it five years ago, but now you can barely breathe. Getting out of the car is an effort. You didn't set out to become unfit. It just gradually happened. And now you're miles away from where you used to be. And that's often what happens in the Christian life, isn't it? You don't set out to reject your faith, but you just gradually drift. And after a year or two, perhaps longer, you're not where you used to be. The second verb he uses is in verse 3. It's to ignore or neglect. John Calvin points out the value of our great salvation, writing about this passage. He says, God wishes his gifts to be valued by us at their proper worth. The more precious they are, the baser is our ingratitude if they do not have their proper value for us. God wishes his gifts to be valued by us, but sometimes we undervalue what God has done and what his gifts are. Of course, this verse about not neglecting our great salvation is often used evangelistically, isn't it? But note that the writer here is actually addressing professing believers. He's not addressing unbelievers. He's addressing professing Christians. So it's something to say to everyone who's here this morning. Whether you're a professing Christian or not, this passage is something to say to you. So what are the strategies for avoiding drifting? What can I do after over half a century as a Christian? What can you do maybe only months or weeks as a Christian to stop you drifting away? Let me suggest some stratagems which might help us. I'll keep you in suspense regarding the number. <laughs> You'll notice that the first word, if you have an ESV in chapter 2, is therefore. So I want us to base our first suggestion on that word, which is why we read chapter 1. Therefore makes us look back to what we've already read, and it makes an application. So my first suggestion, my first stratagem is this, and we've heard it all morning. Fix your eyes on Jesus. See, we live in a self-obsessed age, don't we? We're all taken up with image and self-worth and self-worship even. But looking inward all the time and being self-centered is very unhealthy for our Christian lives. Murray McShane, the great Scottish preacher, famously once said that for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. And that's exactly what the author has done in chapter 1. Drawing heavily on the Old Testament, and if you have time later, get your Bible out, look down the margin, look up the Old Testament references, find out where they're from, and see how he applies them to Jesus. Because these were the only scriptures that these believers had. They didn't have Paul's letters. They didn't have the written down gospels. They had their Old Testament scriptures, which they were familiar with being read in the synagogue week after week after week. And it's on those Old Testament scriptures that the writer here bases the identity of Jesus. So it's remarkable. Quick skim through the passage shows us that Jesus is God's final word. The climax of God's revelation greater than all the prophets who came before him. 
Jesus is the heir of everything. He's the creator of the universe. He's the son of God. He's the exact representation of God's being. He's the sustainer of everything. He's the one, as we heard, who made atonement for sins. He's superior to angels. He's the everlasting ruler. He's the righteous one who hates wickedness. He's the eternal one who never changes. He's the one who is waiting for his father to make his enemies his footstool. And note that many of these passages actually refer initially to Yahweh, to the Lord, to the God of Israel. Particularly the passage about in the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth. In Psalm 102, that is the writer David referring to God, the God of Israel. Here, the writer to the Hebrews refers that to Jesus. He has no doubt that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is the creator, that through him the universe is created and is sustained. There might be others in that passage that I've missed, but you get the point. This writer is obsessed with who Jesus is. And he goes on to develop this theme, as we heard already, throughout the book. Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king that Israel is waiting for. Those are the three great offices in the Old Covenant, aren't they? The prophet, the priest, and the king. The prophet who spoke God's word, the priest who interceded for the people, the king who ruled the people on God's behalf. And in the Old Testament, there were some prophets who were priests. There were some kings who were prophets, but you never find anyone who is all three. In fact, you never find a king who is a priest. It's only when you come to the New Testament, to Jesus, that you find someone who is the prophet, the priest, and the king, who can fulfill all the offices of the old covenant and take us, of course, into the new covenant. We need a prophet to teach us. Jesus is that person. We need a priest to intercede for us. Jesus is that person. And we need a righteous king to rule over us. Jesus is also that person. Do you remember those times in the Gospels when his glory was revealed? And what the reaction was? Do you remember the time when he stilled the storm in the boat? When they thought they were going to perish and Jesus got up and with one word he says, be still. What's the disciples' reaction? They were terrified. Because they realize that in the boat is the one who has the power over the universe. In their boat, on the lake, was God. Do you remember the time on the mountain? When Jesus is transfigured, what's their reaction there? It's to fall on their faces in worship and terror. The disciples fall down before him. And yet how often we pass over the greatness of Jesus. We reduce him. We reduce his significance. Even worse, we sometimes assume that he's there for our benefit to serve us in some way. Have you ever been at a prayer meeting, and I'm sure you have, where whoever's leading it has said, we'll spend the first 10 or 15 minutes just thanking God for who he is and how silent we often are at those times. Isn't it much easier? We often notice this over the years, and I'm as guilty of this as anybody else. Isn't it much easier to bring our requests to God, to pray for the needs of the fellowship, for the missionaries, for the sick, for the preacher, whatever it is, isn't it much easier to do that than to come before the king of the universe and just thank him for who he is? Not even what he has done for me, but who he is. And of course, if we were to read through the first chapter of Hebrews carefully, we would have lots to use in prayer about who Jesus is. So turn your eyes upon Jesus. 
look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Of course, the writer uses those exact words in chapter 12, verse 2. He says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who began it, the one who finishes it, the one who will finish it completely. Jesus is greater than anyone or anything else on offer, says the writer. Better than all the alternative faiths, better than anything the world offers, and following him is immensely worthwhile, even if it's very difficult. As I was preparing for this morning, the Open Doors magazine came through the post, and in the editorial I read this, when everything is stripped away, what are you left with? The unchanging nature of Jesus is, in the end, the only thing we can stand on. In the West, we don't always get that, but our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church truly understand it. Their wholehearted faith is extraordinary. So stratagem number one is fix your eyes on Jesus. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. What about stratagem number two then to avoid us falling away? Focus on the truth. Focus on the truth. Our writer says in chapter two, verse one, we must pay more careful attention to what we have heard. How can we apply this to ourselves today? Pay careful attention means more than having a cursory knowledge of what we believe. Study your faith in depth. I'm sure it amazes you sometimes, if you ever watch The Chase or one of those trivial television programs, and a very easy biblical question comes up, you know, about the Ten Commandments or about something that Jesus did in the Gospels. Nine times out of ten, they haven't a clue. They can answer questions on celebrities and sport and all the rest of it. Simple biblical question. The average person out there no longer has a notion of the answer. I often thought I would like to do mastermind and just choose something like John's Gospel as a specialist subject, you know. No one has ever done it before. And, you know, I might know something about it and the questions might be easy. Maybe you know the old joke about avoiding Ezekiel in heaven in case he asks you what you thought of his book. Um, we, we shouldn't be like people out there, sure. We should know our Bibles well, shouldn't we? And of course, you won't, you'll, after a few weeks, a couple more weeks, you'll be able to meet Obadiah in heaven and tell him you know everything about his book, which is really good. But an in-depth knowledge of the truth is essential to us as Christians, isn't it? And it enables us to have discernment. When you hear a sermon, even this one, weighed against Scripture, would you recognize error if you came across it? Because not every Christian book is error-free. Not every internet preacher has a word from God. Hebrews 13.9 reads, Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. And I might be treading on toes here, but I don't think it's enough just to read a couple of verses devotionally now and again. To get a true understanding of the faith, I think we need to do more than that. And I know you're starting a series tonight and looking at who Jesus is, and that, that sort of thing is absolutely vital, I think. And you know what? An in-depth study of the f- is so heartwarming. When you really get into the depths of what you believe, it really warms your heart. I love this quotation from C.S. Lewis. He said, I believe that many who find that nothing happens 
when they sit down or kneel down to a book of devotion, would find that the heart sings unbidden when they're working their way through a tough bit of theology with a pipe in their teeth and a pencil in their hand. Not that I'd recommend the pipe necessarily. But isn't it true, just getting into it, studying it, and really thinking through it helps us to discern error from truth and really makes our hearts sing, who is Jesus? What has what the church taught about who Jesus is? What are those great doctrines of Christology and the Trinity and so on? People study these in depth for a reason. If you're not sure where to start, try something like Don Carson's book, For the Love of God, which daily readings with one page of in-depth thought. Or Bruce Milne's Know the Truth. Or talk to Jeff and he'll find you something to read. If you want a detailed reading plan, that's where to go. Or work through a Bible book with a good short commentary. Perhaps radical suggestion, work through a book with your spouse, if you have one. Or with good friends. Or maybe even come to the Bible study in Castlereagh Fellowship or whichever church you go to and study the Bible together. We shouldn't be ignorant of what we profess to believe. So that when you get that first Peter situation, when somebody asks you the reason, you can actually respond to them. So far we've had two ways of avoiding backsliding. Fix your eyes on Jesus and focus on the truth. But I have another one. And that is simple. Fellowship. I'm using that as a verb this time because it begins with F. Fellowship with other Christians. If you still have a Bible to hand and you're still awake, flip over to chapter 10. And just look at what it says in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Have fellowship with other Christians. See, the New Testament knows no such thing as a lone wolf Christian. Church membership's the norm. And for a very good reason. Did you notice when I read that short passage there that all the verbs are in the first person plural? It's we and us. It's not I and me. It's we and us. Nobody says we pray together. We hope together. We spur one another on to love and good deeds. We encourage one another. We do not, he says, stop meeting together. I'm sure you don't need me to elaborate on this. But maybe later on have a look at your diary. What are you doing when the midweek's next on? Is it something that's more important? Could it be that you used to be a regular attender, but... You've just kind of missed one or two and now you've got out of the habit of coming. Or maybe you're already thinking, I won't be here next Sunday. Well, don't worry, I won't be preaching, so that's okay. (laughs) But if you're wondering, is there biblical precedent for what Christians do when they meet? Remember what the early church did in Acts chapter 2? It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. All the things you've done here this morning. In other words, they met together, they studied together, 
they took communion together and they prayed together. So my final strategy against drifting is appropriately this. It's finish the race. Or if you like, strive to attain the prize. And it's addressed further down in chapter 10. Verse 35 says this. Do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For just in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with them. And I love the word of confidence that he has for the Hebrew Christians in verse 39. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Let's pray that will be us this morning. Strive to attain the prize. We must keep looking forward in the Christian life. It's compared by the writer to a race. Surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, he says in chapter 12, that's those who have gone before us, and he lists many of them in chapter 11 who lived by faith. We're looking for the city that is to come. We're called to follow Jesus, who chapter 12, verse 2 tells us, he finished the race, and because of him, we are not to lose heart. This has been a short sermon, like the short letter that the writer refers to in chapter 13. But like the writer, I hope you'll bear with my word of exhortation this morning. So in the Don Carson book I mentioned earlier, For the Love of God, he writes this, People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to the scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves that we've been liberated. What is the answer to all of this? I suggested this morning that we should fix our eyes on Jesus, focus on the truth, fellowship with other believers, and with God's help, finish the race. Let's pray together. (coughs) Our Father, we thank you this morning that you have helped us to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. As we have sung songs together, as we have taken communion together, as we thought about his glory and the glory of the cross. And Lord, we've been aware too as we looked at these passages of the danger that we will undervalue all this and drift away from you. And we pray for all of us this morning, speaker and hearer alike, that you would help us to remain faithful, that you would help us not to drift away, to do these things that would help us to remain faithful. And we thank you for the promise that we have that your saints will persevere. And by your help we ask that we would do so. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever.
thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.